Welcome to FinTech at Kellogg, a podcast that sheds light on the innovative people, ideas, and technology that are transforming the financial services landscape as we know it. I'm your host, Farron Meldrum-Taylor, and today we sit down with Brian Clark, CEO and co-founder of Ascent RegTech, which specializes in bringing AI and data-driven solutions to the challenges of regulatory compliance. Brian, welcome to FinTech at Kellogg. We are so excited to have you here. RegTech, I would say, is probably one of the lesser-known verticals or parallels to FinTech, since you're primarily B2B, a little bit more behind the scenes. And I don't think a lot of people understand how much work it takes to comply with regulations and how important it is to financial services. So I really appreciate that you're here to help uh, educate us and teach us a little bit more about the topic. To get us started, you have both a JD and an MBA. Can you tell us a little bit more about your educational and professional background and what led you to found Ascent? Certainly. And first of all, thank you for having me. A pleasure to talk today. Really, my background starts in 2008 during the financial crisis. I stood on the trading floors and watched the market crater. Uh, I think it was in five minutes, the notion of value that was wiped out was north of a trillion dollars, which is a pretty harrowing experience for someone who's early in their career. Uh, That really influenced a lot of my market understanding and and, and the guts of finance. If you fast forward a number of years after being a regulator there, uh, I flipped to the other side and was a general counsel and chief compliance officer. I had attended law school at night uh, while I was working and ultimately joined the ranks of individuals at the financial service entities that had to comply with regulations. And so I sat on both sides. Now, what was interesting in that second experience was watching a lot of colleagues, friends, family, etc., who had to then comply with that new regulatory tax that is Dodd-Frank. And I think we saw that emerge globally. Because of that, a number of folks shut their firms down. And as we know in 2008, from a little bit of overzealousness, we also saw folks shut their firms down. Regulation, in essence, is an economic tax. And any tax, as we know from economics class, can create consolidation. And as markets consolidate and competition goes down, that's bad for consumers. And so the idea of Ascent was really born out of how do we keep proper regulation in place without harming businesses? One benefits consumers, and then we want to make sure we're benefiting businesses at the same time by reducing the cost of this regulation. So as a result, Ascent was born and ultimately founded it while I was at the University of Chicago booth getting my MBA. Very nice. Thank you. And can you describe at a high level how Ascent works and how you help financial institutions comply with the various regulations? Certainly. So I think it helps to give a little bit of context about some of the newer technology. When we look in the 1990s, that was really when data became ubiquitous, when it became popular. In the 2000s, data had paywalls. People started monetizing it. And in the 2010s, we hear this all the time, people uh, are selling insights Insights are built on data. The prediction here, pun not intended, is that in the 2020s, knowledge is the widget. Uh, Much of those outputs that humans create are in service industries, et cetera, is knowledge. You know, medicine, law, finance, all of these industries are producing words, and all these words come from data. So how do we start thinking about human knowledge sets as widgets that we can automate. And that was really the fundamental underpinning technologically of of Ascent. We have a lot of words, regulatory text, changes, documents, et cetera, that we have to process and we have to put together. And all of the work we were doing that we wanted to do repeatedly across all these different jurisdictions and regulators was really, really difficult to have humans do. 
And the only way forward is to automate it. And so ultimately treating that knowledge output like a widget is what allowed us to build a center. Very interesting. So specifically, how does the platform help companies comply? So I know on a high level, you are tracking these regulations and you push them out to the companies. And from there, is it just up to them to figure out how to actually implement the changes they need to comply? How does Ascent help them with the actual implementation of some of these? Sure. So the key is that the system's actually going to do a lot of the heavy lifting. It's going to read through the regulations. It's going to extract components called regulatory obligations that are appropriate for you. What we find when we uh, calculated this was that of the regulations, about 65% is extra. 35% is, is the obligations themselves. And this is based on text analysis. Now, this is for rules-based systems. In other jurisdictions, which are principles-based, those jurisdictions are more around 50-50 or even up towards the opposite, where 35% is not as important and 65% is. So that's kind of the range we see. All that information is processed and then given to the consumers. Our customers then use that so they understand exactly what obligations they have, when and how they comply with them, all of the context around it. So it builds this digital knowledge set of everything they have to follow. Got it. I know sometimes, especially with regulations, there can be gray area with how exactly to comply with each of them. At least I have a background in tax, and so I know that sometimes you could read it many different ways. Sometimes it's not always written clearly. How do you handle those gray areas? It's a great question. I would imagine in in your endeavors, when there's a gray area, you seek comment letters, you seek statements by Internal Revenue Service Mm -hmm. from the Internal Revenue Code. You'll have advisory notices. It's the same thing, right? Context is a very human, interpretation is a very human word. It's not a machine word. A machine word is context. And context can come from any sets of data. And so you can pull that from the same stuff. Got it. And if one of your clients has a question about something, are they able to come to you and ask a person if they're unsure of how to interpret something or unsure of some sort of implementation? Or do they generally have their own internal counsel or internal compliance teams that they're going to if there's... Yeah, folks have their own, and and we require that. I think this notion of a full-stack startup probably worked a couple of years ago. As AI and natural language processing have taken over, it reduces the economies of scale in full-stack startups. And so as a result, it's not really worthwhile to have the same sort of service program anymore. It used to be, and it was a great business. I think it's shifting a little bit. Got it. And what types of customers do you serve? Is it all purely financial institutions? Is it other fintech startups, like brokerage firms? Who, who exactly are you serving? So frankly, all of the above. We have customers all over. I think that's the beauty of modern technology. SaaS is a distribution medium. It is not a, necessarily a standalone product anymore. The stuff we put in our SaaS, that's the value now. And because of that, that's how we have acquired customers in all these different areas. There's a number of examples publicly about the large financial institutions we're working with, Commonwealth Bank of Australia, ING, just to name a couple. We've also partnered with the Financial Conduct Authority in in London, the UK government regulator for financial services, and there's more coming on that front as well. So we've seen uptake from institutions that are small and large, and frankly, surprisingly, governments as well. Very interesting. And I know you serve clients both in the U.S. and globally. Is there any additional challenges with working with global regulations versus U.S.? So it's an interesting question. It's harder to service them because of 
your approach to making sure you're with your customers, understanding their pain points, delivering them solutions. And so we make sure that we spend a lot of time traveling, frankly, to meet with them and understand those needs and, and get them the support that they need. As far as international regulations, what's been interesting is most of them are in English. There is a lot of nuance to it. And so we have to build that into how we service those customers based on the local regulations. God, I was going to ask if the language processing works the same, yeah. essentially, with other languages as it does, especially for non-Western languages. Like, does it work the same way in Japan as it as it does here with the so, language processing? Yeah, it certainly could. We have not really forayed into other languages yet because contextually, it's not even context, it's the math, right? The math of translation is limited to about 95.6%. You really can't go past that. That's state of the art, mostly because humans have statistical bias in their translations. Mm-hmm. And so the machines can't figure out what 100% is. Because of that, you can't really translate and then put it in our process. Now, if you did, it would still work just fine, but it's not the same level of reputability purely to things outside of our control. And anytime you introduce a foreign agent into a system of, or into an equation, right, that variable that's introduced can create a different output. We can't then rely on it because we can't control it. Got it. You mentioned different pain points for your different customers in, in different regions. Is the main pain point with regulation compliance just the sheer volume? Is it the actual implementation? Is it that it's confusing or difficult to implement? Do you see differences between different regions in these? It's probably, again, all of the above, not to give you the lawyer answer again. Uh, I I do think regulatory change, the Delta has increased, and we've seen numbers on that. I I think I read somewhere up to 185 times an hour, something changes, and I can get you the exact statistics on that. The bottom line is regulatory change is a growing part of compliance, and then ultimately interpreting that into how your organization operates. So the operationalization of any piece of data, in this case, a rule change, is still something that, you know, back in the day when I was doing it, it would be everyone would read it, we'd all interpret it, we'd come debate about it, come to a single line of text that then we would spend very little time actually implementing, you own it, go do it. But that process of getting to that point was very laborious and oftentimes extremely expensive. So how do we shorten that time cycle and get information or knowledge rather to people in a much quicker way? Yeah, that sounds like it takes a lot of human work hours to to parse through. So are you able to design your system towards the different needs of different types of clients? Like I assume that financial institutions are complying with a different set of rules than, say, a smaller brokerage. So does your system also filter through which ones specifically apply to different types of entities? Yes, absolutely. The key is that when we treat knowledge as a widget, as a product, that the system curates to whatever the use case of the customer is, whether you're a large bank, whether you're an investment advisor, or whether you're a broker-dealer. It doesn't matter. The system will actually automatically curate to what you do. Got it. One of the keys here, and I think something to add, is the technology can work across industries, and that's the exciting part. It's not limited to financial services because when you build something, a set of technologies like what we've done, it applies to anything in the English language, regardless of what industry it's in. And so over time, you know, there's something called transfer learning, where most of the modeling in one industry is very similar to the other outside of some unique phrases. And so you can actually use the technology across different industries, and, and we've had quite a few requests about that. That's something we'll consider at the appropriate time as well. Okay, I was about to say, does that mean you're planning on expanding into yeah. some of these uh, other industries at some point? Well, I think anytime you run a startup, uh, the whole point is, how big is that total addressable market that you can go after? And I lived this 
environment. I lived in financial services from 2008 until 2015, frankly, on the regulatory side, so I knew the problem set. But it's not something unique to those firms. That pain point is there all over the world. There's 100,000 unique regulatory bodies in this world. And if you can help alleviate even a portion of that cost or be a part of that conversation and reduce the regulatory tax, it's a really powerful place to be. And frankly, when you're speaking with investors in early days, it's really important that you understand the capability of where you can head to because they're going to count on that as well. Got it. That's horrifying to think that there's over 100,000 regulatory (laughs) bodies. Are there any industries you see as particularly desirable or particularly interesting to address that problem in? Well, I think financial services, which is why we're here. What we've seen is that about 750 to 800 regulators uh, run most of the regulations uh, globally. That probably doesn't account for a lot of the local stuff. But by and large, that's where the, some of the biggest pain points are. You know, we all know the industries that are regulated highly, pharmaceutical and medical, environmental, uh, energy, those sorts of things. But the bottom line is it's not restricted to one industry. AI itself is going to be regulated here in the next one to two years. It took 11 years for big data to be regulated in Europe, 13 in the States. AI will be much shorter than that. And so we're only speeding up the process of writing rules and regulations. We need to speed up the process for how we track, follow, and comply with them. Are you involved at all, or how much do you pay attention to some of these potential regulations for AI itself? So we've actually, I track that directly. Uh, There was an executive order issued recently related to the use of these technologies. Between GDPR, the California Privacy Act, those govern data usage. AI is more about the automatic transformation of data into something useful, making decisions in lieu of human decision-making processes. And I do think that as long as we constrain the output, there isn't as much harm in the near term that can happen, but it's important we understand it. You don't want to overly regulate a burgeoning industry. You want to allow it to be competitive and grow, but at the same time, you want to keep the guardrails on. I do think that will happen and probably is appropriate to do so in short order. What then are some of the biggest challenges for you and Ascent as a company? Is it this potential for regulation of the technology or is it just surely keeping up with the regulations? Is it just growth generally? Growth is always an interesting paradigm. Uh, It's a wonderful problem to have. Uh, Certainly, there's no shortage of demand for regulatory support products and services. I I think the key really is making sure you're solving those customer pain points. If I were to identify anything that's been a challenge, it's that when you work with institutions that are averse to risk, and by definition, compliance officers, regulatory compliance risk are averse to risk, that is a very different sort of process. And you have to be in tune with that and be empathetic to what folks deal with every day. Frankly, they're the ones protecting the firm from really nefarious situations. And so one of the challenges it poses to startups is you have to be very patient. And patience is kind of the antithesis of why you do this. And frankly, from an investment standpoint, is something that you have to have uh, folks around the organization who understand that as well so you can time things out properly. That would probably be the biggest challenge. And how do you get some of these institutions to become comfortable with using a technology like yours, especially if they're generally used to essentially doing it themselves? And as much as they probably hate the process, there's a certain level of comfort knowing that like, I trust myself to, to do this properly and to protect my firm. How and why should I trust this new AI thing? Yeah, it's the pinnacle of confirmation bias, right? You know, as humans, we often think we're the best at everything we do. So often that I will compare how this machine outputs versus me. Well, would you want to compare your driving against a machine, right? 
there's 30,000 accidents every year that are fatal to people, and there's been one so far of all the self-driving cars that have existed. Now, tragic it certainly is, people really struggle with that sense of control. And so one of the things that we, we share and we're very open about is the system's not going to make the outcome decisions for you. You're in control of that, but it's going to help you do a lot of the day-to-day work and support you in automating those administrative, those transactional or static functions that you're doing over and over and over. And so there tends to be a little bit more comfort. You know, if you look at my definition of AI is really anything that five years from now is considered normal. Right. Five years ago, we probably thought Siri was AI. Mm-hmm. You know, 10 years ago, a smartphone was probably considered AI. And 15 years ago, it was probably Google Maps because we were used to printing out terrible MapQuest directions, putting them in our cards and losing them halfway to the trip, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a moving target in a sense. And there's always the adoption curve of new technology. And so it's just making sure people are comfortable with that and supporting them in that journey. And is there, from an internal standpoint, as you push out different aspects of your technology or you're keeping up with new regulations, what kind of quality control, essentially, mm-hmm. are you, do you do behind the scenes to make sure everything is working as it should? Yep, that's an integral part of what we do when you're working with data, when you're working with automation. Uh, absolutely, we have folks who are dedicated to quality control, especially because as machines take over, and as they have, for us, most of the, uh, the heavy lifting, uh, you have to make sure that the outputs are appropriate and everything's working correctly. The analogy I always make is if you look at a car factory 100 years ago, it was 100 people in a row building a car, right? And now it's 99 machines in a row with one person building 100 cars, right? So the nexus has flipped and that automation hasn't eliminated the opportunity to work with cars, but what it has done is remove people from the day-to-day generation of that car and building of that car and allowed them to take high-order positions and let the machines do that heavy lifting. And I, I look at ours very similarly. We can now let the machines do a lot of the heavy lifting and start to look and find things that really you know, weren't available. They weren't abstractly available to us before because of the very in-the-weeds, human-based approach we took. And that's actually a really exciting place to be. So backing up a little bit, you mentioned you were working with the UK government. Is Brexit a big concern for you or your company in terms of how you're going to deal? Or maybe it's just a big opportunity for you guys, to be honest, um, now that there's potential for much more of a split between the EU and the the UK regulations. So certainly uh, uh, it is not something that, you know, fragmentation is not something that you hope for, right? It's not something I hope for, I should say. I think that there are very uh, significant impacts of of that sort of action that can be harmful to a lot of people. When you look at Brexit, it's an economic, it's a logistical, and it's a legal and regulatory fracturing of a union, kind of like the U.S. before the current constitution that we have, very similar to the Articles of Confederation, where probably with with a better setup. But with that fracturing, as you said, there is opportunity to help retie those things back together, reconnect rules and regulations across different jurisdictions to allow people and businesses to operate with lower costs. And it tends to reduce the cost of border. And that actually can be a very powerful thing, right? Open borders has has had a big movement and retrenched a little bit recently. But if you can reduce the economic cost, logistical cost, not us, but we can help on that regulatory cost side, I think it tends to bring folks a little bit closer together, and that's a really productive output. So working with government institutions like 
the yeah, yeah. yeah thank you what work exactly do you do with them how does that differ from when you're serving the actual people who are being regulated yeah it's interesting the fca is a really forward-thinking institution fantastic people there and the project we're working on with them is to do what's called componentize their handbook so digitalize it and break it down and, and allow uh, folks to do with their set of regulations what they can do with other sets of regulations in our system. Uh, and the FCA is, is obviously was encouraged enough by that to put that information out into the public realm, and we're excited to work with them on that. Interesting. So you're essentially working on a proactive basis with these government institutions to making regulatory compliance more Easy or easier or... So we're supporting the UK ecosystem, as many folks are, and in this particular context with the FCA, uh, this is one opportunity that we've had to do that. And do you think that other regulatory bodies will be interested in doing that as well, or is that a bit of a tougher sell? Absolutely. So we just released a press release a couple of days ago, based on some news last Friday, uh, that we'll be working with six regulators to push a project forward. Now, it's in process, but it is public, uh, where we'll be coordinating across six government entities, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, the Australian Securities and Investment Commission, the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK, Dubai Financial Service Authority, and then a two in Canada, the Ontario Securities Commission and the AMF, Autorité March Financière out of Quebec. Apologies for butchering that one. Um, those six regulators will be working with them to actually compare regulations across different jurisdictions. And this is kind of the ultimate end game for what you, we just discussed, which is how do you reduce the cost of regulatory arbitrage? Now, the ethical constraint on there is making sure that you're doing it in a very appropriate manner. But they're all very excited about the opportunity and we're excited to kind of get into the details of planning that project and hopefully push that forward. So is the goal of that really to standardize regulations more across different bodies, sort of like an international accounting standards? No, no. And I want to be very clear on this one. I've had this debate with multiple folks. The standardization of the rule of law is not a positive. The more you standardize, the less variance you have. And rule of law's variance, in particular in capitalism, is what creates positive externalities and outcomes that otherwise wouldn't exist. If we make everyone follow the exact same instructions in every jurisdiction and everywhere, then we'll get the same outcomes everywhere. And I think that flies in the face of the value of diversity. Mm -hmm. I believe it was Judge Learned Hand who is famous for saying that the states in, in the United States, he's a Supreme Court judge, I believe it was him who said that states are the laboratories of the federal government. They're the places that are experimenting. They try new laws and experiences. And if we make everyone follow the same thing all at once, progress is going to be a heck of a lot slower. So I don't think that's a positive outcome. But what can be helpful is for businesses to know, hey, I can take these five actions and comply with regulations in these six countries. That allows commerce to flow and wealth to generate. And that's ultimately more productive when returns go to consumer surplus rather than producer surplus. Got it. So it's more about making compliance more efficient rather than standardizing it. Absolutely. And the cost is, I saw a study that said upwards it's going to be 20%. Right now, the numbers we've seen are 8 to 10%. Can you imagine a space in a company that isn't revenue generating or technology building and saying it costs 9% of your capital? I mean, that is a staggering statistic. I'm sure many companies would like to avoid that, Absolutely. that cost. Is that something that you do already with your software? Do you show them like, okay, you could 
comply with FINRA here and then comply with some other regulatory body here. And here's basically like doing the same thing helps you comply with both or is it very fragmented? Well, the system allows you to see all of that, certainly. Just as one dashboard. Well, it's all of the information is output in the product in a, in a variety of different outputs. Uh, so there's a, there's a variety of ways to see and slice and dice that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the knowledge that's generated will show you uniquely to each regulatory body what you have to follow. So now that you're working with some of these uh, big regulatory bodies, are there any trends that you see in regulation or in compliance? Yeah, it's been interesting in that we're seeing a lot of institutions and governments, there's really a no excuses environment anymore. There's an expectation. There was a Royal Commission down in Australia. I believe they call them series, uh, CIRAs in the Netherlands, uh, the Dutch regulators. There's this approach that has really merged nicely with our market positioning. I I think we take a very data-driven, line-by-line approach, which is the only way you can solve this problem. You can't solve it by throwing a neural network on top of it like some institutions are known to do. It doesn't functionally solve the problem. And so there's been a lot of uptake in the way that we've done it. And it's been nice to see the regulators really take a more quantifiable data-driven approach. Everyone is really moving towards taking the qualitative and turning it quantitative. And specifically with fintechs, you mentioned earlier about regulation not being so onerous as to prevent growth. Do you think that there should be any sort of difference in regulation or tiers in order to help spur this innovation that we're seeing in in different fintech startups? Or do you think it should just be across the board the same? I think progressive regulation is a really important concept that doesn't get enough traction, right? There are institutions that create more risk and they should be more highly regulated. You know, I always say that large institutions are the bowling ball on the tarp that is capitalism. And the more of a, a weight you put on that tarp, the more you should be regulated because of the impact you can have. If you're a marble, you probably don't need as much regulation because capitalism can then work the way it's supposed to. You either succeed or fail based on your actions and the market's interest in your products and services. And that's appropriate. That's a very unique metaphor for for that. (laughs) Um, I'm going to go back a little bit since we haven't talked about it yet. You do have an MBA, and even though it is from Booth and not Kellogg. (laughs) Forgive me. It's okay. We'll give you a pass this one time. Thank you. So is there any way in particular that your MBA education has been helpful to you in, say, founding and running Ascent, just as a company generally and being in Regatech specifically? So my legal and regulatory background, the domain expertise is certainly kind of what led to the initial product sets. Everything else about the business is due to not only what you learn in business school, but the tools you're equipped with to continue learning. Business school is not velocity. It's acceleration, right? You learn how to learn. You learn how to attack problems and and solve these commercial issues. And I think that's really what I took away outside of the standard lesson sets. We've been so fortunate to be supported, frankly, by the entire Chicago community and a number of folks in the Kellogg community as well. I will talk for just a moment. The Booth community has been phenomenal to us. I do think, given that that's where you know we were incubated, we would not exist without their support. And, and I give them a lot of credit for a lot of the lessons, education, and support that we received in our early days. Did you go into business school knowing that you wanted to launch a startup, or was that something that came to you while you were there? Certainly, I think you have a little bit of an appetite for entrepreneurship. It's a little bit of a a mindset, if you will. But ultimately, it was I'm experiencing this problem 
everyone's experiencing this problem. I should do something about it. And I think entrepreneur, everyone has those opportunities. I think entrepreneurship is maybe the lack of risk aversion to jumping off the deep end and doing it because statistically the odds are not in your favor, as everyone knows. But then again, I think entrepreneurship is about priding yourself and beating you know, being the tail risk. Mm-hmm. So. so you had too high of a risk appetite to stay on the compliance side, essentially? You just uh, needed to go into entrepreneurship? Well, I, I, I think anyone who has any risk appetite is too high for the compliance side. That's, that's fair. Very yeah. interesting. Has there been any difficulties for you, going back to more the business side of the company, in getting funding and launching this startup and being in reg tech specifically and convincing people of essentially your, your value proposition? Or have most people been pretty open to to seeing the need for, for what you do? Well, I think people always listen. And I give a lot of credit to the community and, and being open to that and providing guidance and support. And this is across the board. Uh, I had a number of wonderful folks in Chicago, a lot outside of Chicago, the institutions at Kellogg and Booth, et cetera, who have provided pretty sage wisdom with respect to fundraising. I, I do think with any new technology, when you're pioneering, it's different than a commodity product that has set market value or, or product market fit. Now, the opportunity is much bigger, as we know from our risk-reward analyses, but it, it is difficult and it's hard to evangelize that. And we started the company in RegTech before RegTech was a word. The FCA didn't coin it until 2016. I know that. Yeah, so it's it's really interesting that we went through this program Calling it automated compliance. So what all did these you call things. it? What did you call your your industry when you started this? Uh, just compliance automation. In oh. uh, RegTech has been kind of a nice encapsulation mm-hmm. uh, of of all of the different opportunities, and so it's really grown out of fintech, but I think kind of become its own as as all things do organically, and and we've nestled really nicely in there. What were some of the biggest challenges when you were starting the company? Did you make any of the big pivots as you were doing it? What I mean, there's always you know something that goes wrong. Yeah, you know, I couldn't even name one thing. The resiliency you have to have to handle everything every day, the ups and downs. And to me, I don't think it's as much about managing the valleys because you know those are coming. It's about not getting too high on the peaks, mm-hmm. right? You really have to make sure you stay centered. And, and be thoughtful because the good things need to outweigh the valley. You know, the peaks need to outweigh the valleys, certainly. Uh, but it, it's keeping that clear head and, and that kind of in, intention and authenticity towards the direction you're going. And we've been fortunate in that we haven't really had to pivot on like a holistic way. But I'm sure there are pivots that happen every day. Every time you learn something, to me, success is regression. And regressions are not straight trend lines. That's the output at the end. But as we all know, there's a lot of different data points. And now that you have this lovely office on the 22nd floor with all these employees, what has been some of the biggest challenges for you as a leader in, in growing this company? It's interesting. So I, I actually looked at this, and I'm sure this won't be a shock given this interview that I quantified it. Um, but I, I took a look at all the articles I was saving over the last year. And what was shocking to me is 75% of them were looking internally. Right? You can't look to other people to grow you. You can't look to others to solve your problems. A very, very good friend of mine from Booth gave me a quote that it is one of my favorite. And it's that really the nature and tenor of the leader or the CEO of any organization will have its fingerprints all over the rest of the company. And I think that is so true. And so you really, it's been about 
taking a look in the mirror and understanding where my faults were, where are the things that I need to improve, and not just being honest with others, but being honest with myself on where those those things have to happen, because it is a very trying journey, and you will learn things about yourself that you didn't even know you were capable of learning. And as much as it's an amazing experience, it's also quite harrowing. Well, it's, I think a good note to end it on. That seems like very good words of wisdom for all of us. So thank you so much. I'm very interested to see how everything unfolds and what direction you guys end up going in. I know you mentioned some big news coming, so hopefully that'll be something exciting to hear about. But I think that's all the time we have today. So thank you again so, so much for, for being on our podcast. Excellent. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this interview with Brian. If you want to learn more about FinTech at Kellogg, you can reach us directly at fintechclub at kellogg.northwestern.edu or come check us out on Facebook. And if you liked what you heard today, please remember to rate us on iTunes and click that subscribe button to hear future episodes. That's it for now. Thank you for listening. Until next time.